Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red, and today we have again one of our favorite friends of the show, Timur Azhari, the reporter at Daily Star. How are you, Timur? Uh, I'm great this morning, uh, as I think we all are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we shouldn't call Timur a guest, right? He's just like, we have three presenters for this episode. Yeah, more or exactly. Less. Yeah, and, and, and we're, we're going to throw out the rule book on this because Lebanon fucking exploded this week, right? And, yeah. and that's why you're here with us, Timur. Like, you've been covering all of this stuff very closely for the Daily Star, and we're not going to do our normal, like, Act 1, Act 2, all the, all this bullshit. No, we're just going to talk about what happened with the fires in the mountain and then like literally fires in the street and the massive, really huge protests that are happening right now across Lebanon. And even today, you know, like right now, right before we started recording, we're recording this on Sunday. You know, people are out in Rarasola right now protesting again. This is not going away. Um, and so we are we're, we're going to get to the protests, but I, I think it's first necessary for us to talk about the other really, really, really huge story of the week which plays into why people are protesting and that's the fires right the, on early monday morning or something like 1 a.m or something like that fires broke out it, like the, the biggest one was uh down in Shouf, uh in the mischief area and it just i mean like the the weather conditions were it was just like this perfect storm right a, a, a long dry summer we haven't had rain at, at all for the past few months and it was just it was unseasonably warm as well there were high winds and everything and so the the fire that broke out there and there were fires that broke out in a lot of places across the country it really just spread and, and especially the one in Shouf like spread to a lot of places and just ravaged huge portions of the country people were displaced uh, do we do we have numbers on that yeah i mean so we have reports of over 120 fires across lebanese territories between monday uh, and wednesday morning uh, of earlier this week. George Mitri, who is sort of an expert on this, he's been following forestry in Lebanon for many years. He told me that we had 1,500 hectares, up to 1,500 hectares burned in 48 hours. And just to put that into context for you, the yearly average uh, of forest cover lost is about 1,200 to 1,300. We had already lost that amount before these fires took place. So within like two days... We two lost. days, we, we, we doubled it. We doubled the yearly average in two Ooh. days. We, we had lost 3 million trees before the fires earlier this week. Uh, it's estimated we lost about a, another 3 million or more in just 40, 48 hours. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and also to just give perspective, you said 1,500 hectares. You, you can think of a, a hectare as basically like, like a football stadium, a football pitch. It, it's, it's basically like a square one of those. So that's a lot of area. 1,500. That's just a huge area. Yeah, and, and the air footage shows how tragic it is. Like, when you look at Mishrif, the, this town on the coastal part of Shouf in Mount Lebanon, it's just so devastating, right? It's, a, it's such a green place. That's why people go there and, like, especially rich people build houses there. And the original residents like it because it's such a green town, whatever. And it was just, like, burnt. It's it's really sad how, how much we lost in terms of like green uh, green spaces right and it's important it's important to say that i mean we had fires you know the, the because the fires were so intense in mishrif and in in the surrounding areas in debiye and in metan coverage focused on that but we had fires from south lebanon in nabatiye we had fires in north lebanon in akkar you know, exactly. it was really across the entire Mount Lebanon range, and it even went into Syria, into Latakia, Homs. So it, it really was the entire sort of eastern Levant mountain range that was burning earlier this week. Yeah, and 
things really, I think, started to hit home, maybe not as much on Monday, but then like Monday night and Tuesday morning overnight, there was just sort of this calamity that happened, right? The fires spread. People were like, they had to get out of town and just leave their houses, leave all their belongings, leave all their possessions and literally flee. Probably some people like for the first time since, you know, the Civil War or something like that. You know, it, it, it was something that was that, that harkened back to to that sort of a feeling like, oh, my God, no, we have to get out now. Don't bother with your belongings. Get out of town. And that that happened over overnight. Right. So it was a very quick thing. It was just fire started Monday in, in the middle of the night. And then like 24 hours later, they really spread and caused a lot of displacement. And so Tuesday, this was the earth shattering story of what was being done. Why isn't the government, you know, stepping in and taking care of this? Uh, you know, at, at very least, why aren't more I guess officials stepping up to the plate and going there, like Rael Hassan went down there. We we had Palaya Ubian went uh, at night. There. At night, yeah. There is video of her. I mean, from that night, twelve o'clock uh, in Mishlif, she actually went around Mishlif, Damur, the B, and and she's literally in the streets, like asking people, "Are there people still up there?" They say yes. She's like, "Okay, let's like go get them." You know, uh, extremely dramatic. And soon after this, you know, uh, as as the sun rises on, uh, was it uh, was it, it was Tuesday, right? It happened overnight Monday. Yeah. As, as the sun rises on Tuesday, people start asking, "Okay, where is the response?" Uh, and it quickly becomes apparent that we have three helicopters that were donated to the Lebanese government, firefighting helicopters with a massive capacity of four thousand liters of water that are sitting at the airport idle because they haven't budgeted maintenance and spare parts. They've been at the airport for at least five years. To put that in context, Lebanese army helicopters can carry like 700 liters. So you're talking about a vast difference there. And then, yeah. and that's and that's when people started getting really angry. Uh, you know, everything seems like it's tied to the incompetence of, of successive governments. And it was just like, how, how could you do this? You know, how could we have firefighting helicopters and you just don't get the spare parts? Right, because because what was what was happening at this time was the government was saying, "Oh no, we we really need more firefighting equipment. Uh, we don't have anything." So we so they had to go to Cyprus. They went to Europe to ask for help. Uh, we got help from Jordan. So all these countries started sending their aircraft to Lebanon to do this. But we actually had our own aircraft. And and just to give people a, a sense of why this is so outrageous is that these three aircraft they weren't bought by the Lebanese government. They were donated. Private, private people, like everyday people, pitched in back in 2009 to buy these helicopters so that fires wouldn't devastate Lebanon like they had. Uh, I don't know if it was 2008 or it was, it was right 2007. before 2007. We 2007. had devastating fires in 2007. Right. And so right after that, a bunch of people got together and said, hey, we are going to fundraise. We're going to buy we're going to we're going to buy firefighting helicopters so we don't ever go through this again. And so literally the government didn't have to spend a penny on this. They 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 got the, the, the politicians got these helicopters handed to them with money left over for maintenance. And then they just let everything fall apart. And decided, oh, we're not going to spend the a parliamentary committee said it would take six hundred thousand dollars per year to maintain all three of them. I've seen other reports saying like four hundred fifty thousand dollars per year. Um, actually, in two, both 2013 and 2014, the government did allocate eight hundred thousand dollars each of those years specifically for these three helicopters. You can read it. It's in the decrees. I, I don't know where that money went. According to Ziad Baroud, who was interior minister back when the helicopters were donated, 
he said that they had stopped being in service, I, th I think, in 2012 or 2013, which is really, really bizarre because there were funds allocated for this in 2013 and in 2014. Right. So what the hell? And and besides this, in the Army budget, certainly there is enough money. The Army has a huge budget, and they certainly have enough money to to maintain this if they wanted to, uh, if, if their priorities were, were such to do that, and they didn't. So here we are sitting with the, the government basically taking this gift of people who actually care about Lebanon and, and not giving two fucks about it. Yeah, it just, it, shows, it just shows how, like, no one can understand anything except incompetence, but also, like, corruption. Like, the fact that... Yeah, this where did that $800,000 go? That, sorry, $1.6 million go? Yeah, and, and, and why? Where was the money that was supposed to go here? Where did it go? Like, who was responsible of making these decisions and decided to allocate the money somewhere else? It's all such a dirty business, and it increased, it boosted, like, it kind of fueled this distrust that people have in the, the government to a great extent because it was so clear that this incompetence and this corruption is causing the massive tragedy, right? The, the, the fires. And fire is so scary. Like, just like, like uh, there's a sentiment, public sentiment, there's nothing scarier than a fire eating over, like, the, eating these towns and these forests, etc. And I think it's important to mention that the helicopters are only a small part of the lack of preparedness ahead of time. Experts yeah. will tell you that you stop a fire before it starts. You don't stop a fire once it's started. Once a fire is started, it's really difficult to turn a fire off, especially the scale we saw, especially with the conditions we saw when you have a 20-meter wall of flames in a dense forest that you can't get to. It's really difficult to put off. So in 2009, Cabinet approved the strategy. Again, after the 2000 fire, 2007 fires, you know, there was a bit of movement. They approved the strategy. Georges Mitri again tells me after that, nothing happened. So we've kind of been sitting idly waiting for this catastrophe to come. And when it comes, we're entirely unprepared. Civil defense is under-equipped. People haven't been hired in civil defense, I think, for something like 20 years. It's mostly a volunteer force. You know, you have a lot of old men who are, who are fighting these fires. And the, the state was completely unprepared. And as always in Lebanon, what do we do? We go to outside to, to seek salvation, you know? We go to yeah. Jordan, we go to Europe. It's, it's almost as if these fires are sort of a microcosm of the way Lebanese politicians approach crises, whether it be financial crisis throughout history, waiting for donor conferences. We, we always have to go begging outside and, and hope that they actually come back with something. In this case, they did. And in this case, there was another kind of divine intervention, which was the rains, which put out the fires. What would have happened if the rains didn't come? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it was sort of like Lebanon got a freebie and the politicians sort of sort of got a freebie because like there was a thunderstorm that moved in on Tuesday evening and, and helped to put out a, a lot of the fires across the country. Of course, some came back, but then they were able to be put out by civil uh, civil defense and the firefighters. And then this is one side of the, the ugly story of, of politicians. And then the other side is the, the, the conspiracy theories and the sectarian incitement that we saw that was really beyond outrageous. Yeah, Paula Yaoubian was not the only one talking about this. Yeah. She wasn't the only MP talking about this. Yeah. Yeah, MP, MP Mario Aoun, the star of the wildfires, an FPM <laughs> MP. Um, former came minister out, as well. Former minister, yeah. Uh, he's from Damur. This is where his seat is in parliament. And he came out... He was somewhere in Damur and he was talking to national television and he said, oh, we're wondering why these fires are targeting only Christian villages, which was factually wrong. 
like indisputably like indisputably uh, the facts were wrong but also like what kind of a what kind of a, a, a sick a, sick yeah. mentality on exactly. every fucking yeah. level jesus fucking christ you're not even right on the facts and then also what the oh fuck my God. even if you were right on the facts yeah. you don't even say this shit this is beyond outrageous yeah. everyone is targeting and, and and this plays into the the other conspiracy theories of like oh somebody set the fires right so it was part of this uh, just to give some context to our listeners it was part of this like idea that the FPM is always always pushes which is that uh, the Druze are or the the Druze and the PSP uh, you know religion Blood's party are kind of seeking demographic change that kicks these Christians out of uh, out of the area it was just part of this political battle between FPM and 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 uh, the PSP. But they 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 fuel these tensions that are not even real. They're not really there, and they they fuel them and they reproduce them in moments of crisis and moments where people should come be coming together. And and apart from that, like other conspiracy theories were also extremely like heartbreaking. Like that that we even have people sharing, which is Syrian wor- uh, Syrian workers accused of starting the fires. Yeah, I mean. Really, this is the like the only thing that you cannot blame Syrian workers for, which is a natural phenomenon. You blame them for that, and also uh, another conspiracy theory that was shared but maybe t- taken less seriously was that Syrian workers were entering houses that are being evacuated by people due to the fires yeah. and stealing right. stuff. I mean, we went really far in this. Uh, it was it was really yeah, this like ugly. like the. the 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 Syrians are just fireproof or something like, and they're just like, rushing into the areas that are being ravaged by fires to see. Like, no, nobody yeah. is going to do that. That's ridiculous. And this kind of rhetoric just contrasted so appallingly with the heartwarming aspects that we saw. No pun intended with heartwarming here, but <laughs> but the you know there really were heartwarming aspects to this in in people coming together, and it's almost sort of a foreshadowing to the protest movement where we had the entire country really united in a way by the fact that we're burning uh you know that the, the country's forests are burning we saw volunteers you know coming out from everywhere in damur there was this volunteer center set up where, where aid was coming in faster than they could deal with it and there at that volunteer center we saw an fpm minister arrive uh i think it was on on tuesday night yeah. uh and he he kind of wanted to go in there you know take some photos shake some hands People were not happy with this. They shouted him out. There, a scuffle broke out basically because his bodyguards apparently. So I, I spoke to an activist who was there. She said that bodyguards like had put their hands on their weapons, uh, which basically caused these the volunteers there to flip out. Uh, and, yeah. and and punches were traded. Uh, Hassan Atallah was pushed out. He claims he was assaulted. Uh, and he says he has a medical report that proves this. Uh, he uh, also said that the judiciary should not arrest any activists, which is a surprising phenomenon coming from the FPM because they are known as the party that cracks down on activism. But it was clear that no one is buying his, his, his story, right? I mean, yeah, no one cares about him at that point. It, everyone was caring about like how people are responding to this. And I was at this, I'm so angry because I was, this, I was at this volunteer center until literally two minutes before Hassan Atallah <laughs> arrived. I really wanted to see this happening. And I, <laughs> and I, and I drive uh, out of the center going towards Beirut and my friends called me and she's like, like there has been a fight and bodyguards of Hassan Atallah have their weapons out and whatever. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I just left. <laughs> and just this line from an activist who was there, basically the rationale for kicking Atallah out 
is Nada uh, Nasif. She told me that Atala is part of the ruling elite that we oppose. If they had done 50% of their jobs, there would be no need for us volunteers. She also went, out, went on to say, we know that when there's a crisis, the state fails to act. So we've gotten pretty good at organizing ourselves. We don't want him, nor do we need him. Oh yeah, Nada is a, is a comrade in Lihaqi, in our political organization. Uh, but I just want to say that it was really amazing how people got together. Because I woke up on Tuesday and everyone like woke up to this news that the fires are expanding, that it's, it's a really serious situation. And the first thing that people do in Lebanon to organize is create WhatsApp groups, right? So we started creating like WhatsApp groups for this. I didn't, but like people close in the circle, people who are usually active in, in one way or another. And you wouldn't believe it, like the, the, there was this group called something like Firefighting Volunteers. And it grew from five people to maximum capacity, which is 257 in literally less than an hour. And everyone was like, what do we do now? How do we do it? Just give us tasks. Let us help in any way possible. And there were like five others of these WhatsApp groups. And I'm only talking about one area, like uh, not even going to other areas. I don't know what happened there. It was really amazing the amount of, 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 of support. When the, when the volunteer center was set up in, in Damur, uh, when I arrived there, the amount of supplies that was arriving from all kinds of organizations, community organizations, people, donate, people coming, buying whatever they have in the pocket, buying some food and water. And we, in like a few hours, we had so much water and medication and food that we couldn't even send them to those areas anymore because they don't need them. But it also says something that, you know, we were sending food and water to civil defense teams. And these civil defense people have been asking the government for uh, to become full-time staff for years. And the government has ignored them. And to be indignified in this way, I don't know if that's a word, but like to be for their dignity to be crushed in a way where they're not given their full-time like jobs and benefits uh, package. And also not being supported while they are on the field, they like overnight and during the day fighting this fire nonstop without any really breaks. And other people having to send support like in food and water and stuff like that to them that's really that that angered a lot of people and because it shows how 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 just like completely dismissive and how this this government or the ruling class in Lebanon has really no idea about the situation of real people and how to improve it or to deal with it and also so it just shows how easy it is to do like a, a bunch of people just got together spur of the moment no like huge organizational structure needed or anything like that and more than took care of a lot of these needs right and so why can't the government do this exactly which yeah. is it's a responsibility of the government yeah so the fires uh, w- which one one person was suffocated in uh, and died another person was hit i think by an emergency vehicle right and and also died and and obviously like all all of the damage that was done to just the physical infrastructure and the people who had to flee and everything i mean, I mean this this was a huge thing but luckily as as we said it was brought to an end with the rains that came on Tuesday evening. And so all, all of this, I mean, this was the story. This was what we were going to do the entire podcast on this week. I, I mean, in and of itself, like this shows everything. But then some other things happened, right? And <laughs> to put <laughs> you, it you mi- can say that. To put it mildly. Yeah. So, so let's see here. So this happened. So fires break out Monday, accelerate overnight into Tuesday. Tuesday evening it rains, largely puts it out. Then Wednesday, there's a cabinet meeting. And what do ministers decide? We didn't know this at the time, by the way. But ministers decided to put a tax on WhatsApp and, and other, like, any, any sort of voice over internet protocol, any sort of, like, internet-based phone calls, which are very, very important because you can't make regular phone calls here because it's prohibitively expensive. 
they decided, okay, well, if you're going to use that, then we're going to say we're going to charge you 20 cents every day. So basically, if you make phone calls every day... And everyone and, does, uh, to be to be clear. Yeah, yeah. Then it's going to be uh, like $6 a month or so. And, and this and, is like really like the most regressive tax possible in, in a situation like you're saying in Lebanon where phone calls are so expensive because poor people need it the most and rely on it the most. You can subscribe to WhatsApp only as a service and then you can make all your calls for free and they want to tax that so can they can trap poor people in the situation where they can't make normal calls and they can't make WhatsApp calls anymore. Just the most regressive tax imaginable. And you're already paying for Wi-Fi and 3G, which is, again, among the most expensive 3G services in the world. You know, our telecoms are among the most expensive telecoms in the world. And so they want to basically load you with fee after fee. If you're like a Syrian laborer in this country making $300 a month, you know, WhatsApp call is what you use to call your family. You know, it's it's your it's like your your only free means of communication, uh, and and they're just coming in and stomping on that. Yeah, yeah, and and it also sort of like reveals this bias in it amongst the the leaders of like oh they they talk a big game about like oh we're we're behind tech and we want to like. Uh, support small businesses and create a good good business environment and a good like <laughs> you know inc- incubate <laughs> you know startups oh, and yeah. bullshit like that no when push comes to shove they don't give two fucks about that obviously because this is this is like this is part of like McKinsey plan and all that stuff like you need to make sure that telecoms like you bring down the price of the telecoms and make it actually a more accessible thing not go the other direction Exactly. But, and that's, let's, let's remind people what we said in the episode about the new cabinet when it was formed. Remember when we were talking about Mohammed Sher being like really the most regressive reactionary politicians, anti-poor capitalists in the country. He's the representative of bad capitalists in Lebanon. And he was made telecom minister. The, the telecom sector is the sector that is making money for the state. It's the, it's the kind of successful sector, although it's extremely, extremely expensive for us. But, right. So the, 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 the state guy. owns both of the mobile companies and sets the rates and everything like that. It's a state monopoly. They get all the revenues. It goes to the treasury. And this tax really is the baby of Mohammed Jair. A little bit of background here. In parliamentary committees, the Parliamentary Telecoms Committee has been investigating the telecom sector because profits have gone down a little bit over the past year or so. I think. Well, I think la- it's a long-term trend. Right. Okay. A long-term trend. And basically, Mohammed Mohammed his sort of point of view or his uh, justification has been, yeah, all these people are using WhatsApp calls instead of using our normal, you know, uh, normal call services via Alpha or Touch, and so we have this reduction in profits. So what does he come and do uh, under under this like a, quite a large investigation from the you know telecoms committee? He comes out and he basically is doubling down on this theory that it's just the WhatsApp calls and it's nothing to do with mismanagement in the sector. You know, too many you know costs in the sector, inefficiency in the sector. No, it's the fact that people are using their WhatsApp calls. Let's go and tax their WhatsApp calls. Yeah, really stupid. Oh, which is surprising coming from him because I thought, yeah, like you're you're talking about Mohammed Shuer being, you know, like this uber capitalist and everything like that. I thought when he first came in, at very least, he'll be, uh, I guess, a smart capitalist, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and if you if you look at this from a business angle, this is a disastrously bad idea. But apparently, him and 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 let's be fair, it's not just him. The entire cabinet agreed on this, right? Or or yes, the and majority. all of them are responsible. Right, right. Although so let's not pin it otherwise. just on him. But I thought him, like, you're Mr. Capitalism. You should really know better. 
about, and he didn't. Yeah, about these things such as private taxing or whatever, like kind of yeah. putting charges on. And also, obviously, this has never been implemented anywhere and it's against the rules of WhatsApp, which says you cannot, you know, charge anything for our service. And so this, like in itself, it's it's a it's an idea that was, was never even, like I don't think it was feasible. It was never going to be implemented. Now it's completely out of the after question out of the like the equation but uh, even before that like it was never going to be implemented in my opinion it's against whatsapp rules and people would never well well the, the telecoms companies alpha and touch had reportedly bought the technology needed to implement this wow so already yeah uh, according to smex uh, the advocacy group so we had uh, we did we didn't know about this on wednesday but then al-akbar reported it in the thursday morning edition of the of their newspaper and then everybody started asking ministers, what the fuck is going on here? And then Mohammed Shu'er uh, confirmed it. Uh, Jamal Jarrah also confirmed it. And then, psh, like, hell broke loose. So I get a message, actually, from Nizar. He, he, he <laughs> shares this, uh, you know, small blurb with me, basically saying, let's head to the streets against these new taxes, you know? I've seen many of these over the past months, a year in Lebanon, you know, we've had ongoing protests sort of every week or two, you know, people are heading to the streets over the economic situation. I saw this, I was like, okay, this is happening, people are going to be pissed about these taxes. Around six o'clock, I think, people headed to the streets yeah. in Riyadh al-Sulah. We called for it, six, yeah. It was about, I'd say maybe 50 people at that point, something like that, maybe a hundred. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, around, two, around by six by six thirty seven when everyone had arrived, it was around uh, two hundred fifty people. Two hundred, two hundred fifty people. Okay, right. So about two hundred fifty people. We saw people gathering the other solar soon after the this this main road uh, called uh, uh, Tari Er Ring, uh, which is like near the solar, like on the outskirts of downtown Beirut, uh, was blocked by protesters as sort of night fell. And, you know, TV, TV crews went to cover it. We heard over and over from protesters there, like, shame on you if you don't come to the streets today. Shame on you, shame on you. They were blocking the road. Um, and, and then they started moving around the capital. Uh, they, you know, they walked down that street uh, towards, like, downtown Beirut by Seifi. Uh, then they, they worked their way back up. Uh, they went to Hamra. Uh, and as they, as they marched, people started joining. And it swelled to hundreds uh, they marched through Hamra, returned to Beirut, got back to Riyadh al-Sulah, and after a while, we were in the thousands of people in Riyadh al-Sulah. Soon, reports started coming out of different, pe- you know, different places across the country starting to protest, and very quickly, it turned into tens of places across the country. By the end of the night, we had reports of 60 places across the country. You're talking Nabatiye, Sur, Saida. Uh, the Beka, you know, places like Talabeya, which is just not on the map of any person, you know, living in Beirut, really. Yeah. Uh, the entrance to Baalbek. We had people blocking the main highway. We had people in Junye. We had people in Hakkar, in Tripoli. You know, all across the country, people headed to the streets. It was just a moment of of, umpri- of uprising that really I have never seen before. Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, like we, we talked about like, yeah, Lihaki, you you guys did call for this, but it's not like people were waiting and they listened, oh, like with all due respect. Of course. <laughs> and, and, no, of course. It, was, it was a genuine just like, what the fuck? Let's get out to the streets. Yeah. It was the last throw, right? It was the, this thing that just expl- the flame that exploded, exploded the whole situation. People were waiting for just a call. And it was not only Lihaqi as well. Like individuals started calling on Facebook. We're just going to the streets without any like demands or anything. We're just going to the streets because we cannot handle this anymore. And this got a lot of traction. And it was so spontaneous, so amazing how, how, how the momentum grew. And the first like 
I was so scared at one point during the first march when we became like a much larger protest, as you were saying, uh, Timur. It was growing while we were walking in the city. And when we became around like maybe 1,000, 2,000 people, this thing happened with Akram Shaib's convoy, which was, in my opinion, was uh, like a risk that could have like maybe made the whole thing collapse in Beirut for a, for a, for a bit. Uh, which was, uh, you know, Akram Shaib's convoy was, was trying to leave, I think, from Hariri's office or somewhere around Starco area. It was right Hariri's in house. front of the Bank Audi headquarters in downtown. Right. In downtown. So he was, and the, and the march was arriving, and then the march was blocking the road to his convoy, and his bodyguard goes out with a machine gun, he starts shooting. Rambo style, like by the way, like he has zero oh. fucking training whatsoever with a firearm. Yeah, 100%. He jumps on top of the vehicle, starts shooting into the air, and then and uh, you see, I mean, incredible scenes there, because you, you had protesters literally ripping off their shirts, standing in front of him and saying, shoot me, shoot me, motherfucker. Uh, and and he eventually ran out of uh, bullets, uh, and that guy got his ass kicked. And this is where we get the viral uh, image, sort of the icon of this protest, which is this guy standing in front of Bank Audi. You clearly see the Bank Audi sign yeah. behind him. <laughs> He's holding his empty fucking gun, uh, and this woman ninja kicks him square in the goods, you know, yeah. right in the goods. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and this is the image that you guys see right now. Like, if, if if you if you have sort of been paying attention to this, like this is the image that you see of this woman, like yeah, kicking this guy in the junk. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah and but th- this could have spiraled way out of control and could have gotten very, very, very bad. Yeah, because when, I mean, when something like that happened, you don't know how it escalates. If someone was killed, etc., it, it would have been a different thing. But the people were very determined to just march on. Like, very few people even thought of leaving. It was amazing, and they just kept marching on. And the momentum grew bigger overnight than you could have ever imagined. Like, people were just, like insanely supportive of this all over the country and and this is also where the fires broke out this time in the streets a a portion of the protesters started barricading streets in various places across the country and like lighting fire uh to the to these things like Mm -hmm. it was a shutdown you you couldn't drive anywhere you you had to walk or be on a motorbike or something like that to get anywhere. Um, and there was there was, there was like literally like a huge bonfire right in front of the Muhammad Al Amin Mosque uh, in in Shuhada, right? Yeah, I mean th- that that was for me the what, like the most incredible moment of that day. I left our Daily Star office, which is right you know right near the mosque, and and walked down, and my jaw just dropped. Massive, massive bonfire right in front of the Muhammad Al Amin Mosque and the Saint George Church, which are sort of like this this picture icon, like this iconic picture perfect symbol, you know, of the coexistence of Lebanon, which people love to share. You know, like ambassadors will share it, politicians will will flaunt this kind of coexistence. You know, <laughs> which most Lebanese kind of scoff at because their experience of the post-war so-called co- coexistence is actually this, you know, the sharing of spoils between these uh, political parties who say that they represent this or that sect you know it's and it, it was really just a symbol of like you know just we're burning this down and it was also a symbol that you know people are taking over the city and they go to the to the heart of the city it was it's not really the popular heart like the human a human from a human sense or, or a demographic sense or anything but like symbolically it's the heart of the city it's the place that where, where people were kicked out because Downtown is really felt uh, understood by people who are uh, poor or middle class, people like myself who were kicked out of the area, that my family was kicked out of the area or whatever, by Solidar and the project there. It's seen as this area that is forbidden and that's, that's this, this big 
public slash private area where political decision making is made. All the shops and buildings are so are so fancy, and you can you should you should not even like sit on the bench there. Private security on every street corner. Yeah, it's just exactly. It's just one of these areas that you feel like very excluded from. So when they go and they burn shit there. It's it it has an impact. It's it's just powerful. Yeah, it's it's taking back their city, what is rightfully theirs, from from these you know this ruling class that has sort of like kicked everybody out, it, and and then built this sort of like fantasy rich world for themselves, and literally nobody else can access it unless you've got a lot of money, exactly. and they're they're going back and they're taking it back. And and they did to to build the bonfire. They were taking boards off of the nearby construction for the uh, the Hajej building. Uh, the owner of the MEA uh, B Bank. Uh, the, he's the one developing that building right there by the uh, by the mosque. And they were taking you know <laughs> materials from there from this right. bank owner basically to as fuel for their fire. Right, and and you had people also starting to burn, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, outside or or actually in uh, another building. And this is actually, I mean, one of the tragic developments from that night. Right, is is we had a building in downtown Beirut, uh, a fire set uh, in that building, and two Syrian migrant workers were actually in that building at the time. Later that night, we heard reports that they had died, suffocated to death in the fire. Civil defense, you know, worked to retrieve their bodies. Uh, and it was really, I mean, it, the, the whole night had been so, you know, building up and building up. And I remember being in the office and sort of seeing that come on TV and just putting my head in my hands and be like, oh, this is the worst possible thing that could have happened at this moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so sad because it happened. It's so sad because people don't talk about it. I mean, uh, we have all have a responsibility in this. Protesters are not talking about it. Today, there's a move to pay tribute today, Sunday, uh, between 7 and 8 p.m. Uh, during the protest, during the demonstration. But in general, people are just trying to kind of ignore this as if it didn't happen. And this is really sad. It tells us a lot about even among those who are more progressive and less racist, etc. We still have this ten- this acceptance of being kind of dismissive, dismissive of the lives of migrant workers way more than humans that we think are equal to us. Yeah, and it's in really nobody's real politic interests to talk about it. If you're a protester, you don't want to talk about how the protests like resulted in the deaths of exactly. two people. If you're in the ruling class, you certainly don't want to talk about this, right? So, so yeah, there's this like a political atmosphere that makes it much easier to just sort of ignore it and not talk about it at all. Yeah. So this was the first night with all of its like complex and weird like developments and and the second day was the day when everyone woke up to this to this fact that the people are are doing an uprising right it was not like it was literally just one night it started with a march and then the next day all the roads have been blocked people wake up to know that there is nothing called going to work today or going to university or anything because the whole yeah, country is shut were down closed, banks were closed and and good because yeah the, all the roads were just shut down like i remember i i had to walk to work that day you you couldn't get anywhere and and this really freaked out politicians yeah i mean it's important to note that the protests never actually really ended that night right on on going going from thursday to friday there were people people remained in the streets pretty much the entire night uh, I, there were reports throughout the night of roads blocked of new protests of new people heading to squares yeah and and yeah on on friday i mean really within Within 24 hours of the first people taking to the street in the tens of people, we had the prime minister, you know, get go on TV amid, you know, some expectations that he might actually resign the government. A- ahead of this, Walid Jumblat had called Saad Hariri 
and he, and Jumblat told a local news channel that he had basically told Hadiri we should leave together. You know, we should resign together. Uh, I, I prefer if we resign Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Haruri, uh, he was set to speak at six, I think. And then we heard that, like, oh, Gibran Basile's going to speak. <laughs> He's going to speak before Haruri, which is all right, whatever. So Basile comes out. Such at a Basile move. Just have to say that. It's such yeah. a Gibran Basile move. Yeah. And, and, and when he came out, like, it, like he was different than, than his normal, like, self-assured belligerent uh, kind of self <laughs> yeah he, he was obviously affected by this right a bit shaken but he but he basically said you know like uh <laughs> you know don't don't do anything give us more time he was part of the process that held up government formation for more than eight months in order to secure his 11 ministers 10 to 11 ministers right so he's got a very good position right now in cabinet he doesn't want to see that fail We'll get more into that later, uh, but suffice it to say, he came out and basically said, okay, like, we're going to reform. We're, we're going to do all this stuff. Don't worry. No need like, to panic or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not no calling need for people, an uprising. <laughs> no, yeah, not calling for people to leave the streets, but also like, oh, don't, don't mess with this. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, then, and then he was followed by Hariri, who also said, like, give me time. But the weird thing that Hariri did was he gave himself a time, like, like a, like a deadline. He said 72 hours. He said, I'm giving my, I guess, political partners 72 hours to agree to stuff. The literal phrasing was to convince me and the Lebanese people and the international community, uh, you know, of, of something or other. He didn't really say it. Or there will be kalamun uh, yani different words. I will be speaking in a different tone. Which a lot of people took to be as a hint that he might resign after 72 hours. Sure. Right. And so th this this was done on Friday at, what was it, 6.44 6 p.m.? Is Again, that... this is literally 24 hours after the first people took to the streets. If you want to like get a sense of how momentous this is and the scale of this you know, across the country, yeah. it's the fact that the prime minister was on TV 24 hours later. People expected that he may resign. And he gave himself a 72-hour deadline. You know, uh, to, to base, you know, he gave himself an ultimatum. 24 hours after the whole movement began. Yeah, which is, is somewhat bizarre, but basically this, the message was the same, like, give me some time, guys. Don't don't do anything crazy. Um, Obviously, that did not sit well with protesters, uh, and they continued that evening. And, and then after, shortly after her speech, I, I believe, was when we started seeing things start to get chaotic in downtown with a lot of uh, shops getting smashed and everything. And then... Crucially, the the government made the decision to let the security forces off the leash. And but we should mention that the night before, uh, I left the square at 6 a.m. and they were brutal, right? Uh, the first night. They kicked us out of Riyadh Sulah to, to the Martyr Square and then out of Martyr Square to near the entrance of Jemaize. And that's so far from, from anything close to a political institution. You're just in, in the entrance of Jemaize, there's just... Paul, like the, the entrance shop. of Jemez is sort of the antithesis of political activism. Exactly. And then <laughs> you're there and then we're like, okay, we can breathe now at least without onions because there's no tear gas. And then they fire tear gas there. It's just insane. And then they started like surrounding protesters and cornering them and arresting them. It was just absolutely insane. This was the first night yeah. and this provoked a lot of people. And I think this, was, they, this gave the, bag, the background for the riots and, the, and the, the violence against police the second night. This, it, it gave a lot of people reason to do this because, you know, this, they saw what happened to the first one. Yeah. 
and and the crackdown took place in the early morning hours, uh, you know, basically of Friday, right? People were cleared, you know, they'd gone overnight Thursday into Friday. Then on Friday night, the the clearance actually happened way earlier. So the army, you know, Riyadh al-Sulah Square was entirely filled with tear gas. I know many people who were there at the time. There were kids there. They were standing around and then huge amounts of tear gas were fired into the crowds and the Lebanese army rushed protesters. I was trying to enter the square at that point. It was a sea of people leaving around 11 at night. So the decision had been taken around 11 that, okay, we're going to end this protest for tonight. The army rushed, you know, pushed people all the way out of Riyadh Salah, uh, pushed them out of Martyr Square and then sort of uh, drove them up towards the Jisril Ring, the, the road that's, uh, you know, on, on the outskirts of Beirut, the, the Fuad Yeah, the one that got cut that we referenced earlier. Yeah. Exactly. And they were being brutal. They were hitting people with the butts of their rifles. Uh, you know, they, uh, they, they were cocking their weapons and pointing them at people. Uh, they were beating people. So I documented a protester just being beaten while he was on the ground and soldiers would just walk by and give him a whack of their baton for good measure. Uh, you know, yeah, so was, this was the Lebanese yeah. army acting in this case. Also, the ISF was involved. Yes, yeah. But but really, at that point, I mean, the, the Lebanese army were leading it. Uh, and it's important to note here that the Lebanese army is very like respected in Lebanon along uh, um, among a large swathe of the population. And they're sort of the ones who are always behind the riot police in these protests. The riot police are sort of like the dogs who are let loose to do the dirty work, right? Yeah. And and the army are the people who are sort of left to maintain, like, you know, when things get, like, sectarian, the army ste- steps in, when it, when it's really issues of, mm-hmm. of, of, you know, of strife. But in, in this case, we saw the army really doing the dirty work. Yeah, yeah. And and, and by the way, in, in this time that they drove everybody out of Riyadh Salah, I just want to mention, that is when they brought in all the concertina wire and created the giant fence, like basically blocking off the Grand Sarai, the, the seat of government from Riyadh Salah Square. So they, they used, they knew well, we need to drive these people out so that we can put up a barrier, right, a right. physical barrier to keep them out in the future. And, and this is a call back to the last time that this happened was 2015. Okay, so a, a, a lot of people were upset by all of the damage that was done to downtown. And, and so there, there's different wings of the protesters, right? There's the ones who like went and smashed up things. But there's also a lot of people who are like, no, this is not the right way to protest. And a lot of people showed up the next morning to sort of like clean up the downtown area. And this ushered in sort of like a, a very different vibe for Saturday. Mm. That was It was much more like carnivalesque mm. you know uh, and people dancing in the streets and uh, like there was music playing and djs and everything the tensions that had been there the night before weren't, weren't present yesterday weren't present on in saturday. beirut in, in beirut, in beirut. Yes, yeah. yes yes because it's important to know that we woke up on saturday to reports of people in sur being shot at by people who are reportedly affiliated with the Amal movement of Speaker Nabih Burri. And we have graphic videos of people bleeding on the ground, being taken away on mopeds. Reports of injuries are, you know, it's sort of hard to get a clear idea, but we have three to seven in the south. Uh, We also had shooting in the north. Uh, We had, uh, you know, an an MP, a former MP for Tripoli, Misbah al-Hadeb, tried to join protesters in Tripoli. They responded by throwing water bottles at him and getting really angry. Uh, and, and then his bodyguards, again, shot on the crowd with live, live fire, injuring people. Uh, there were reports of deaths, both in, in the north and the south. 
unconfirmed as of this point is very important. Yeah, I think Tripoli happened on Friday, yeah. right? And then Saturday was down in Seoul. Down, down in Seoul. And then we started seeing these videos of Amal movement supporters basically like loading weapons and saying like, this is for you. You know, anybody who insults the Amal movement or Birri, we're coming for you. They also threatened media. So Al Jadid uh, TV, who are known to be like the, the most strong on the ground, they they, they were directly threatened by uh, Amal movement, uh, you know, supporters. And this they have a history of, of sort of animosity. We did see violence, you know, uh, especially in the south on Saturday morning. But yes, in Beirut, the picture was completely different to the two days before. It was uh, like a family protest. You, you go to downtown Beirut from Martyrs Square to the other Sulah, you had children, you know, so many women, so many children, young, young people, old people, uh, j- just a really festive atmosphere. Yeah. And, and the the other thing that happened on Saturday morning specifically mm-hmm. was uh, Hassan Nasrallah spoke. And everybody was like, I kind of thought, oh, he's going to like go in with the protesters. But he didn't. He he basically threw his lot in with Gibran Basile and Satru. He said, like, no, we don't want anybody. We don't want anybody to resign. We don't want the cabinet to resign because what's going to come of it? Like, it's not going to work. He, he said, you know, like, oh, you want a technocratic government? That's not going to work. Best thing to do is just like stick with what we have and, you know, Right. Stay that way. Good for you, protesters. You you do what you do, you know, in the streets. But like if we were to come down and actually, you know, Hezbollah were to come down, you know, we would actually, you know, have to get something done. Uh, we, we would get something and done. And we have a staying power if we come down as Hezbollah. Like you, your protest will, you know, it'll fizzle out quite quickly. But if we come down and, and I mean, recent memory of Hezbollah coming down is, you know, when they when they went down to the streets in 2008 and, you know. With their arms, re- yeah. Exactly. That's the May 7 incident. Yeah, yeah, the May 7 incident. His speech was extremely tone deaf, in my opinion, just like Hariri and Basile. And it's, it's you know, for Nasrallah, you know, usually is quite charismatic uh, and he speaks smugly uh, about like international affairs and about how America is failing. He transposed and sort of took that smugness and, and put it on the protest. And I think that's a huge miscalculation. Horrible was, mistake. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and we'll get more into that uh, in, in a little bit. Uh, w- sorry, but while Nasrallah, like as Nasrallah went on, and I think this is important, in downtown, we heard a chant go up that was, Killon yani killon, Nasrallah wahad minnon, which is, you know, all or of Hezbollah them means... Yeah, 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 or Hezbollah is one of them, which is basically all of them means all of them, and Nasrallah is one of them. Because a lot of the time you'll get, uh, you know, or at least in 2015, uh, you know, in the previous protest movement, you had people, you know, saying, you know, we're against all the politicians, but Nasrallah sometimes, you know, is sort of like, e, we, you know, we can't really go there, you know? Now, now it's more and more becoming normal, you know? I've heard it a lot in the streets, you I know, mean, chants against Sometimes Nasrallah. you still had, like, a couple of troubles happening because of that. Yesterday, a couple of people who had their brothers die fighting with Hezbollah, uh, were very angry at us at, at one of uh, one of the comrades who who chanted like Nasrallah wahad or Hezbollah wahad minnun and uh, he, they were very angry but it was like kind of contained before it was not even imaginable to say it on a microphone because you w- mm. you would think that they would fucking shoot you yeah and, and this is the thing so like with, with the sort of like jubilant atmosphere and sort of like breaking of boundaries that we have we, we have all of these new chants that really tread on new ground we were talking about like the things that happened in sur on saturday well supposedly like a lot of this happened because people were for the first time speaking openly calling nabi berri a thief on yeah. tv on tv and they went to the offices of amal movement mps and the leader of Hezbollah's bloc, Muhammad Raad. So they went to the homes of two MPs in the Amal movement bloc and the Hezbollah bloc leader. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and they tore down the sign in front of his office. I mean, yeah. this is remarkable. This is remarkable because if you're in that like situation, if you're in a situation where your only hope in, in social security and being protected socially, being uh, accepted, having any kind of access to benefits or services, etc., or jobs, is not to break this uh, link with Hezbollah and Amal, right? At least one of them should be strong. Uh, you should be loyal to, to, or at least in good terms. And when they, when people break that or go beyond that no turning point situation, it's really different because they're going all the way in. And this is what makes this movement, this uprising so different from previous ones, is that this, these people were always talked about as the people who will never do, do, be part of our revolution, which is why the revolution or the uprising or change in Lebanon cannot happen because all of these Shiites are just blindly following Hezbollah and Amal. And this is amazing because yeah. it's finally... Nabatiya begs to differ. Yeah. Exactly. Nabatiya and Suhul beg to differ and Saida. Like, it's just something that is so courageous of these people. They're paying, like, their, the, its price in, like, in very, very costly ways. But they are, like, leading and, and being at the forefront of a very, very big and important battle. And we heard a protest chant go up yesterday. I think it was first heard in Tripoli, which was, Sur, 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 we want to revolt for you. It was Sur, 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 Kermelik bin Nansur. You know, and this was very, very powerful, and people really reacted to it. Yeah, so in nice Tripoli, thing. it's the preeminent Sunni city in the country. So, like, if you're if you're like new to Lebanon and you take like a Lebanon 101 course, like the first lesson is okay. These are the Christians. These are the Sunnis. These are the Shiites, and they all hate each other, right? Yep. <laughs> and and it's fucking bullshit. It's 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 not that deep of a thing. <laughs> uh, we, we spoke about this on, on a recent episode with Basel uh, Saluch. Like, this is a constructed thing. And 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 that, that, like, bit of theory from a couple of weeks ago, I think, played out for me very much on the street. It's just like, oh my god, it's true that this whole sectarianism isn't quite as deep as everybody seems to think it is. You, we have solidarity between Sur and Trablus. Right. But and right. and today, and just before we started recording, we heard the same chant being chanted in Shuf. And we should remember that the Druze and the Shiites also had a recent confrontation in May 7, as we just said. So there is a lot of like tendency to think that it's because of the Shiites that we cannot, as Druze, accept sec- secularism or change or whatever in the country. Yeah. And we should stick to our leaders. So it's really powerful what's happening. And and one thing while we're here talking about like slogans and atmosphere and everything, there has become a chant that <laughs> I, I think is emblematic of 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 the movement, and it is not Ashad Gurid Scott Nizam. Nor Thaura. Uh, no. <laughs> you, you hear it you hear it probably more than any of those two chants. Yeah. Uh, it is uh, Ela 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 O Gibran Basil Kiss Emmo. Uh, you know, which uh, I mean, I, I don't know how to, you know, I'm taking a fall here by saying this on the podcast, by the way, but this is in quotes. I'm, I'm a professional journalist right now. This is in quotes. Okay. I am quoting protesters. This does not represent yeah. the opinion this of is, this podcast. Exactly. Nor of my newspaper, right. you know, nor, uh, you know, it's not how my mom raised me. Uh, but, but the, but the, uh, the, it, it, which loosely translates to Gibran, you know, Gibran Masil, fuck him or fuck his mother, you know? Yeah. Like the first um, part is just like a football. Trip, yeah, exactly. Right? And, and the profanity, I think, though, is important. I mean, beyond the fact that, like, everybody is having an amazing time on the streets when they chant this, everyone is smiling. It's, it's, it's again, it's breaking down this. I mean, these politicians, they live their lives 
in going from air-conditioned mansion in a beautiful car to, you know, the, the, the Grand Sarai. Everybody is like, hi, sir. Oh, sir, how can I help you, sir? You know, they live in this world that's that's so coddled and cushy. And, you know, they fly yeah. to Paris for their holidays. And and even on TV, when they're interviewed by reporters normally, it's like, you know, Dawlat uh, al-Rais or, uh, you know, even Bake ex-ministers are called, you know, minister. Even ex-ministers and ex-MPs re- retain their titles in this country. Yeah. So for people to be going and saying, fuck you, fuck your mother, you know, it's it's basically, and, and the amazing thing is uh, TV stations have even sort of like unofficially relaxed the rules. I mean, we're hearing profanity on TV all the time, yeah. all the time now. Protesters basically, and, and protesters are even insulting the president, okay? There are there are chants that I'm hearing of uh, thief, thief, Michel Aoun is a thief, right? Right, which is like it's it's against the law right it's like people are being prosecuted as we speak right for insulting like, the, insulting, insulting the yeah, president with air quotes yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and but and, yeah it's 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 really so important what you're saying I, I i really appreciate that you made this point because like this they built their whole life building this picture of 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 them as like icons and untouchable like figures. and respectable somehow even though yeah. there's nothing respectable about what they've done you know right and, and so like years. in a large part yeah. this is like people just like they're going to going to downtown beirut Masalan, to sort of reclaim what is rightfully theirs it's also telling the politicians like no you're down on my level now you're not up up there in your fancy castle up on the mountain you're on my level yeah Exactly. And it breaks with this media imposed kind of um, anti-profanity rules or whatever, which is which is fake because this is not how people this is how people express themselves. This is how the people express their anger. And on the media, they're always like, oh, um, we do not support what some people are saying in terms of swear words. Come on. Of course you do. You feel it in your guts. (laughs) Everyone does. I mean, uh, anecdote larger. Yeah. (laughs) Anecdote on this is that I've, I've noticed that a lot of journalists, you know, journalists are supposed to like be objective right but like i've i've seen a lot of journalists basically like supporting the protest movement right and i think you know as a person in lebanon even if you're trying to be objective the objective position is we have a political class who for 30 years at least have failed on every level from fires to electricity to water you know to to anything imaginable any sector in this country they have failed and so the objective assessment is they're completely you know incompetent corrupt through and through and i mean there needs to be change you know i think i think that's a very uh, you know logical position to take after what we've what we've yeah seen. and this gets right to the heart of the one of the big questions that we want to answer which is why why did these protests happen and why now right and 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 that's that's fundamentally it we came off of this week it, w- it wasn't just the whatsapp tax right that may have been like the straw that broke the camel's back but uh, it, it and it wasn't just the other because they were talking about other taxes as well they were talking uh, about increases to vat to fuel uh taxes stuff like that which would be absolutely devastating for a lot for like wide swaths of the population uh it wasn't just that you back up to a few days before and you you see what happened when the wildfires happened and just the total lack of competence and common sense that pervaded the political class with very few exceptions right you know their their absolute inability to get anything really done and and then and then falling back on sectarianism as opposed to oh, oh no like people actually showing solidarity a little bit earlier in the week and helping each other out and doing a good job, regardless of whether you were Palestinian or Lebanese or Christian or Druze or whatever. Exactly. As you saw the Palestinian defense team, civil defense teams, while the firefighters from, from Palestinian 
refugee camps, leaving their camps, going all the way to Shuf from early morning before dawn and t- helping fight the, the fires during the whole day without breaks. It's Enormous just historical significance as well. And this came after months and months about, of, of, of unanswered and of of ignored Palestinian protests, of a movement of protests and, and Palestinian camps, camps demanding socioeconomic and civil rights. All of this was ignored by basically the, the Lebanon, the, the Lebanese state, and still you saw this solidarity. Against what? Against a political class that not only mismanages the country, horribly mismanages the country to the extent that they cannot figure out uh, how to maintain a couple of helicopters, but also (laughs) actively and intentionally create social divisions, horizontal and vertical, increase class differences, concentrate wealth and income in the the hands of the few, but also increase divisions between sectarian groups, religious groups on every opportunity possible, especially on every election, but also during their daily habits and through their media and everything. And against all of this backdrop, you have this this last straw that is the WhatsApp tax or whatever. So anyone who wants to talk about it, oh, it's the WhatsApp tax revolution, Uh, especially people (laughs) really, especially people in international media coming like, oh, the Lebanese can't handle one uh, WhatsApp tax. They are so so in love with WhatsApp, whatever. Please, like, just have some context, have some historical background uh, in your mind, in the back of your mind. Right. I mean, it, it seems like what happened here is, you know, you had all of this build up over all of these years, and then while the country was still smoldering from a fire and literally parts of it still burning, the politicians are like, oh, by the way, here are some new taxes for you. And it seems that people were like, actually, fuck you. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and 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 it's sort of just it was like a, you know a slingshot that was just pulled back and pulled back and pulled back and eventually just yeah 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 and, and you see this um, a lot of people have been pointing out uh, just the massive levels of inequality in the country as well as as one of the what just these yes. background factors not just that the government's incompetent but like that the ruling class has designed a system that enriches themselves at at like at the expense there's no other way to put it at the expense of the vast majority of Lebanese and when um, we talk about the ruling class we also talk about their business friends not only the exactly. poli- not the politicians exactly. only but also their business allies exactly exactly uh, uh, Lydia Aswad uh, has had a, a couple of great Twitter threads on this she does a lot of research on inequality in Lebanon and you know as she points out you know the top one percent of adults in Lebanon receive approximately a quarter of the national income that's just talking about income. Like if you look at wealth inequality, that's another thing. And they they've stored all this wealth up. They own things most people do not. And and finally, like this, this paints such a, a background and a picture where you've got the, the 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 ruling class that is incompetent in basically every way other than getting money for themselves. Right. They, and, <laughs> and you contrast this with people on the street. I think it's just a very important uh, short and uh, note note here that. When you see people breaking things in the streets, it's important to understand where they're coming from. So uh, two nights ago, I think it was Friday night, I observed some people breaking park meters in downtown. Basically, they were destroying them to try to get at the coins inside the park meters, you know. And if you look at that, you can be like, oh, that's like, why are they vandalizing it? And blah, blah, blah. I, I talked to a protest, like one of one of those guys afterwards. He basically told me that he had managed to get 25 thou out of the the park meter. And he told me, I have no income. This will help me with expenses and food and drink. He went on to say, I'm barely living. I take drugs and spend my nights out on the streets messing with this or that person because there's no work. I swear to God, there's no work, you know? And so, and and there were literally tens of people around these park meters just like looking on the ground for coins, spare change, you know? These people literally just spare change was going to make a change in their life. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, the level of unemployment, the level of people just looking for jobs desperately and not getting any. And also, because you mentioned the number, I'm going to mention another one about like bank accounts, which tells you a lot. Okay. We have 0.8% of bank accounts in Lebanon, the top 0.8%, which can belong to like many accounts can belong to one person. So it might be less than 0.8% of people have 52% of the money. And, the and that's just money in the country. These rich people also have money in offshore. Switzerland and Luxembourg. Exactly. So it's just so just um, I think it's less than the richest people have less than half their money in the country. I bet they have less of than half the money and the poorest accounts, the, the ones less. These are the accounts, uh, the top ones were the ones uh, above one million dollars and the poorest accounts less than three thousand dollars. So this uh, this is 0.5 percent of the wealth in the bank accounts are owned by 60% of people. Wow. This is insane. Like, this is beyond acceptable. And why this is not the, ma- the most important political matter in the country is because we have a ruling class that divides people on based on sect rather than based on their real interests. Right, so I think we should talk about, so who are these protesters and what do they want? Is this, I mean, we, we talked about like a lot of people are just like poor and fed up and they've, they've seen what's going on and they, they're at the end of their rope. But it, it, it's not just that. There's there's also civil society people. There's also like I, I I mean I'm sure there's rich people down there as well. Oh yeah. I, I mean yeah. There, like celebrities. There's, yeah. There's there's a wide swath of the population who realizes who's basically lost faith in the, the ruling class, right? Mm. Uh, and, but is there a movement to speak of yet? Uh, are there mm. is there a cohesive set of demands or is this sort of like because I mean we're really early in this, right? Yeah. Uh, this is just a couple of a few days old. It, is there a, like a, a cohesive set of demands or anything yet? Or is something headed in that way? Are there leaders yet? Uh, or is this way too early to tell? Yeah, first thing to note is that the diversity of people on the ground is amazing. Um, people from very different classes. We talked about the people who are really uh, the poorest, who took over the streets and 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 uh, and expressed the, this, this kind of economic exploitation in their own ways. But we're talking also about rich people, about celebrities, about middle-class families, basically all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of areas, all kinds of religious backgrounds. People look differently. They speak different uh, dialects, mm. etc. It's really, really diverse. And anyone who was yesterday on Saturday was in the street and saw like these, I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands of people in this in this Martyr Square in Riyadh Saleh would see that this is a, a Lebanese kind of popular uprising. This is not like a civil society movement. This is not like some action that is directed by one group because everyone is there and everyone has their own sensitivities, their own backgrounds, their own etc. And they bring it together and they have to tolerate each other within mm-hmm. the space. Mm-hmm. So it's that's really something impactful, like amazing. The Real uh, coexistence. Perhaps, yeah, other yeah, than yeah, the, yeah, yeah. This is how fake kind of coexistence that we're supposed to believe in. And this is the moment of reconciliation that people have been waiting for. Like someone tweeted something or, or on Facebook or something like today was the end of the civil war. And this is really powerful to me. And I think this is so true because this was the first time because 2005 as the big revolution against this, uh, the, the Syrian regime and for the freedom of Lebanon had the diversity, certain diversity. But let's be honest. The Shiites were not in part of that, except for yeah. for a minority, because Hezbollah and Amal were totally against it. They were in the March 8th camp, right? And they were protesting ex- for, for the opposite reason. So this was the moment when all of these people are brought down on the same level as the ruling class, put really below people's feet. 
and people can talk to each other and to listen to 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 their to to their you know anger from different perspectives and like have this indirect kind of conversation and direct dialogue just by being there being part of the same thing while knowing that they are different is kind of how they reconcile and and the other layer to this what how this is the end potentially the end of the civil war is in just one of the basic demands uh, of a lot of the protesters which seems to be very widely shared just like okay these warlords basically from the civil war that sort of set up the post-war system and then you know became the leaders of it who are like a lot of them are still in power today i mean not all of them are warlords but a good portion of them are they're done we want all of them out every last one of them get them out this is this little civil war continued without the fighting system that you guys have set up is no longer acceptable yeah and and to go back to like what the protesters kind of want uh, which is also an important question i think we can't say that the protesters want one thing even if you do like journalism and talk to many people you will see that there are there's a big diversity i don't know Timur, what you think about this but there are, there's a difference between what people are chanting and what organized groups like our group lehaqi and others have put out as demands and what 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 have I, you seen Taimur, I mean, about this? It, on the street it's definitely not the, the government resigning would not be enough you know yeah. like pe- when when like i was talking to people like ahead of haridi's speech you know or after nasrallah's speech like what did you think of the speech what do you you know you know how is it changed they're like we don't care we don't care yeah. uh, like get out you know let them get out let 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 there be some reforms you know let let's let's move forward but they they have to leave but that's not enough yeah it it it, it seems as though um regardless of specific demands right there's been it, it seems there's been a loss of confidence by the people in the ruling class writ large mm. you know and how that plays out exactly whether you just want cabinet to resign or whether you want cabinet to resign new elections of parliament the president to resign and mm. all of them to get prosecuted mm. <laughs> you know yeah. uh, how that plays out probably there's a diversity of opinion but i i i think we're just at the stage now where it's just like oh the, the ruling class has lost the faith of of, of the people in general. Yeah. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah, it seems like to me. Uh, I mean, I totally agree. Uh, and I see, uh, and I see, the, but I see some kind of consistency among the groups in terms of the demands. Uh, even groups that previously were not on the same page uh, or do not have the same agenda have kind of the same demands now, like resignation of the resignation of the government, formation of a new emergency government that is not based, that is independent from the political parties, not belonging to them or affiliated with them, and with the mandate of two important tasks apart like three important tasks maybe are being talked about one of them is new electoral law and early elections another one is fixing the economy actually the first one is fixing the economy obviously and then uh, fixing the economy you can range from fixing the economy and that's it to more left-wing and progressive groups like Ali Haqqi who say like no fix the economy not the way you want like the way the bankers want no fix the economy based on economic justice and based on policies that kind of redistribute the losses of this crisis to those who have been benefiting from from the economic model uh, and the economic model that we talked about, you know, last week in last week's episode. Lots right. of problems, yeah. Uh, the third thing would be judiciary and um, and tackling corruption, which everyone is saying, like, we need to hold these people accountable if they're stealing public money. Right. And we've yesterday night, we saw the first results. It was like, oh, oh, this is real because Samir Jaja, you know, former warlord, 
leader of the Lebanese Forces Party, announced the resignation of his four ministers. He said that basically they decided they didn't have confidence in the government anymore. Uh, I talked to one of the ministers, Kamil Abu Suleiman. He, he basically said the same thing. We didn't have confidence. We feel like we did some things in our ministries, but at the government level, we weren't getting anywhere. I asked him, where do we go from here? And he said, it's not my problem anymore. Um, uh, and uh, and yeah, which is you know <laughs> not a not a great answer. <laughs> no, not not a great answer. But uh, but the the thing is, the LF from the beginning were sort of like it wasn't really working in cabinet. They you know they were first of all given a share they didn't want, and then they sort of styled themselves as the opposition from within ca- you know cabinet, basically well, they, speaking against you know the budget. And and now they're sort of leaving and making their next play. And I mean of. they they also weren't really given um what they wanted in terms of like appointments and stuff like that. Yeah. It it I mean very much we we. We've seen it play out uh, a lot of evidence to support the theory that basically this cabinet is a deal between Hariri and Basile uh, with the acquiescence of uh, Hezbollah. Right. Uh, and, and everyone and else is sidelined. I mean, it, PSP it, are sidelined. Exactly. Side-lined. And so you would yeah. think like, oh, you, you can't think in this March 14th, March 8th sense anymore with mm-hmm. this government at all, because you have Hariri sort of like, apparently, according to the LF, basically sandbagging them, like and not telling them what they're they're going to do in a cabinet session and then like springing something on them and locking them out of certain things. And this is important for the overview here, right? Is that who, who now is is standing together? Nasrallah said in his speech that basically the, the government of the Ahad will not fall, of you know, of the president's mandate will not fall. And the who is that? The deal between Basile B- B- and... Basile and Hariri will not fall. And and it's, it, that's, I mean, the, the picture is right there. It's that you have Hezbollah sort of, you know, powerful in the background. The, the front is kind of Basile and Hariri, uh, their deal. Uh, and, and Hezbollah needs Hariri, you know, to, to sort of be the front of this government because, I mean, who, you know, who else would it be? Who else can, who else takes the punches that Hariri takes, uh, you know, or would be willing to do that? Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a Western-friendly face, first off, but he's also extraordinarily weak, if, if we're yeah. honest. Yes. Uh, he is ineffective. Certainly Hezbollah views him as ineffective. Uh, and so that means it's very effective for them because they can put up this front, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of like pro-Western front or whatever, uh, but not really risk a whole lot, not risk him uh, doing anything major uh, against their interests. Yeah, I feel like the, the, every every kind of politician, or every kind of political actor needs to be analyzed now in terms of what opportunities they have and what risks, etc. Like a SWOT analysis for each of them. Samir Jaja, first of all, was betting on March 14 action uh, when he went on Marcel Ghanem's show the night before he resigned. He went on the show uh, by phone and he said, yeah, I'm gonna, we want to resign. We, we have a moral resignation already there. Kind of like, I don't know how to translate. I think it's moral. And, uh, you know, we're just waiting for Jumblat and Hariri. If they want, we will all resign together. And I was uh, in the studio, part of that show, and the people were looking at each other. It's like, is this a party plan or something like that? Like, are you planning <laughs> a, a slumber party where you're like, oh, yeah, let's go together or not go? You know, it's this kind of right. quite, to be honest, quite not very intelligent political rhetoric because it showed that he's not serious to his people. And his people were in the streets and his people were already angry and they were waiting for the LF to actually to give them the green light to go down and burn the whole thing because they hate the shit out of Jibran Basile's government. And this is right. Jibran Basile's government right, to them. Right. And then Hariri is this in the situation where I think he can't resign just because there's no one to bring him to power except Basile and Nasrallah. Because really, the Saudis cannot impose a prime minister anymore. The reason why Sa- uh, the Basile and Nasrallah want Hariri is because, of, because he's weak, as you're saying. 
But from Hariri's perspective, what do you expect him to do? They are the reason why he can maintain this post and stay in the forefront of Sunni politics in Lebanon. I mean, th- really, he, he's running out of money. He doesn't have, like, really the resources to be buying support as his family has done And for he doesn't a long have time. the support of Saudi even anymore, no. at least not in a financial sense that we know about, not, not the way that they used to. Exactly. So he's in this situation where he's relying on them for his political existence and his political continuity as a figure because he can disappear and he will, I think, disappear as a political figure in terms of not having any relevance in the next 20 years. He has been so battered. I mean, you know, just I mean, the 16 million thing, you know, him paying 16 million to the model. It's just I mean. It's funny, not paying sort his of. Workers, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Not paying his workers. I mean, it's sort of like if the model thing was kind of funny. The workers thing is kind of horrible. But when you take it all together and you and you look at, I mean, what was Hadidi's big thing with the seventy-two hours ultimatum? It was I have my reforms, air quotes reforms, which basically is like a bunch of taxes. And, and you guys, my political partners, come agree to these taxes, which we will impose on the population, and then things are, you know, fine. If you don't do that, I will have different words for you. So it just shows, like, this man is completely out of touch with what's happening on the ground. And, and whether it be the fact that he paid $16 million to a model, the fact that he's not paying his workers, I mean, at some point, it's like, dude, like, you have to get out of the picture. Like, you have, you have so failed, you know, at, at what you're supposed to do. But that, see, that, you know, that's, yeah. that's why he... Like, I, I think from his perspective, he can't possibly resign because if he resigns right now, it is very likely the end of the Hariri dynasty, mm. the end, not just his political end, the end of his house. He won't be able to come back from it. But if he holds on, maybe there's a chance that he can force Gibran Basile into some con- like massive concessions. Maybe there is some way that everything could turn around. Maybe there is some way that Lebanon doesn't go over a financial cliff, mm. you know, and, and and if you're if you're betting on a zero percent chance of success versus a one percent chance of success, you're going to go with the one percent chance of success every time. Right. But meanwhile, to the people in the streets who are seeing this politics as usual, you mm-hmm. know, behind the scenes of like, oh, let's, you know, hey, my partners come to me and let's make a deal. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just it it just looks ever like so completely detached and and people are so disgusted by it, you know. It's it's just it really doesn't seem like something like that could work at this point, you know, uh, you know, or placate the people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, and also we have to think that if Hariri has a chance in like being powerful politically in Lebanon, is that the pro-Syrian regime in general camp, like FPM's Hezbollah Amal camp, is gets weaker with time, with the next election, which I think will happen. Because of other actors, not because of Hariri, other actors emerging and taking some of the support, especially FPM has reached its peak, in my opinion. So what he did now makes that less likely because he put himself in that camp. Uh, but I, I also want to just talk about Nasrallah for a second. I think he was not politically smart in this. Uh, his people did not accept this. His loyal supporters are expressing anger explicitly and publicly now about his stance. He seemed very arrogant towards people and... I think that what he did in his speech is, first of all, he told people that whatever you're doing in the streets, you're wasting your time, which is imposing desperation and hopelessness on people. And this is a really ugly move, in my opinion. And this, to me, made me like despise him as a politician more than ever. Because when you impose hopelessness and desperation on people and tell people you cannot achieve anything with your own power, 
it's horrible. It's it's like the opposite of the kind of politics that I would dream of in the kind of society that I want. And also when he says, not only that, but he says that the people who can actually achieve change are Hezbollah. And when we go to the street, we don't go out of the streets and we do whatever we want there and whatever. And we can like reverse whole equations and whatever. So he's saying we are more powerful than the people of Lebanon. Really, this is what his message was about. Like, don't waste your time. You're not going to change anything because we we decide what happened to this country. And then he says, if someone wants to do a revolt in Lebanon, a coup in Lebanon, an uprising in Lebanon, it's us who can do it and no one else. And this message itself put him in this situation, I think, that is making it that's going to have real serious political costs on him. Especially that now things on the Syrian frontiers are, 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 are calming down. People are not like hearing these new stories about martyrs, things that usually fuel the support for Hezbollah. This is important. I'm hoping and I'm, I think this will happen that Hezbollah is, is about to start declining politically in terms of loyalty and support. I, I, I mean, yeah, I agree. This is just a huge strategic misstep, and which is really strange because usually Hassan Nasrallah, he is, he's one of the smartest uh, political minds in the country. He he's not one of these people who is just out of touch and flying jetting off to Europe all the time, right? No, he he usually has his finger on the pulse of things. I mean, usually not always, right? But totally missed the mark on this. Yeah, what what he w- was saying of, about the protests is he's basically like, oh yeah, you kids go go off and play, like have your fun, you know. Uh, but but us, you know, you know, we're we're the, we're the grown ups here, and we're not going to do anything. So first off, that is very demeaning to the protesters. Yeah, but then also smug. it's. It, 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 it is wholly throwing his lot in and Hezbollah's lot in with Jiran Basile. Who is the most hated politician in Lebanon, no question. And yes. Saad Hariri, exactly. who is the second hated exactly. movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and Hezbollah has been on this huge anti-corruption drive and all this stuff. Oh, we want to like clean up government and everything. With Nasrallah's speech, he undid all of that. He basically said, we are with the corrupt politicians and not with the people on the street. Yeah. Which is a huge, like, strategic blunder. I mean, maybe he can fix it, but uh, it just and and right after that, we saw like I started seeing a lot more right after that that uh, a chant that we were talking about before that like everyone means everybody and Hezbollah is one of them. Yeah, you know. Yeah, hundred percent. So it's really it's really a very complicated kind of situation politically for the major political actors as well as the actors organizing on the ground on how to navigate the upcoming days and upcoming periods. What's important to think about now and what's on everyone's mind and everyone's talking about, I think, is can this really achieve change? Because last time we tried this was in 2015. No immediate impact. Nothing really changed immediately. And none well, they eventually solved the trash crisis. Did they, though? <laughs> no. They, 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 they got mean, the trash off of the streets. Right, which but. is pretty much like they swept it under the rug. They swept, yeah, they swept yeah. it into the sea. Which is was what enough. they did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this re- time, there's no trash though to to sweep under the rug. It's the entire political class that it was on trial. Yeah, this time is, is is it's a bit more strikingly political against like the ruling class. But also in terms of impact, what is different is that the people who used to mobilize to be the main actors in 2015, civil society background middle class, usually freelancers, free, uh, liberal professionals, etc., have a certain strategy of doing things. Uh, I wrote my master's dissertation about this. 
they do things in a way that is that does not cause disruption in the country because they don't want to block roads because they want to win the middle class over and the people who have businesses and they want to move around they don't want to annoy anyone they don't want to cause any riots they don't want to do all of these things that might be provocative so they end up having a revolution of and not criticizing them from outside i'm like friends with a lot of them and i appreciate their experiences but like they end up having this revolution that is basically social media posts go to the square on this day and then that's it it's it's basically um skipping steps that are super important and most importantly skipping the only thing that matters for a ruling class which is are you affecting their daily continuity by disrupting the system of governance and 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 capital accumulation and profit mm-hmm. accumulation because now we are because now the banks are closed most of the malls are closed big businesses basically everything the whole country is shut down and if this continues to happen on monday tuesday wednesday you should expect something to happen i think even if hariri extends his ultimatum by wednesday I believe that if the country is remains shut down then we will definitely see a resignation of the government or something very scary that is like a violent repression that we ha- we cannot even like imagine now and one that is coordinated among different forces. Right, given the conditions on Sunday, it seems that one of the you know today Sunday as we're speaking, it seems that repression of the protests might really be like the only way to get people out of the streets. I mean, again, things have fizzled out before, they could fizzle out again, but what we have seen is unprecedented in its national scale, much bigger than 2015 in its national scale. And even in Beirut, you know, 2015 was kind of more of a middle class, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think and, the and protests were bigger in Beirut in 2015. Yes, like you yeah. had Martyr Square built, yeah. right? Which yeah. you don't have yet, Definitely. but there wasn't stuff going on and, you know, 20 different locations across exactly. the country. Yeah. And this is the power. On Monday, we will see, and everyone is saying this this thing. I'm not talking about organizers only. I'm talking about like protesters, people mm-hmm. who are not organized in any kind of context. They're just going to the protest. And they're saying the most important day is Monday. So our listeners are, depends what time on Monday they're listening. The whole thing might be like really one way or another, because if Monday morning, the co- whole country is shut down, this means that this is an actual uprising. This is not a festival that ended on a weekend. Although we had a general strike on, on Friday that was quite successful. And in my opinion, the only private sector general strike that has been successful in the last long, long, long years. If we have that on Monday as well, this is really something different. This is something that is unprecedented after the civil war, at least since the, the crackdown on unions on the union movement in the end of the 90s. We haven't seen this. So I'm really hoping that this is the moment where disruption will impose on the ruling class change because the most important victory that we can achieve today, of course, we want a, a, a new government to do this and this and that. And we want to overthrow this whole like ruling class. But the most important thing now is that we gain a victory in terms of people believing in themselves and the hope of people imposing change through taking action because this is what has been missing for so long. And the reason why people are so amazed by what happened now, including myself, the numbers of people coming and everything, is that people have been telling me for for the last year, Nizar, why are you still in the country? Why are you doing politics? Why are you organizing? This is all for nothing. You're not going to change anything. And they're saying it as friends, as people who care about me. Like, go and look, uh, like, focus on your career or whatever, because nothing is going to change in this country. We cannot do anything. We tried it. We protested. We came out with 100,000 people in 2015 or whatever, and we couldn't change anything. We're not going to do it again it's not gonna work and then suddenly all of these people back in the streets believing it more than ever 
it's really powerful. We gained a victory yesterday with the, with the, with on Saturday with the resignation of of the LF ministers, and the resignation of the government will be the big victory, and it's really really significant. So we are recording this on like Sunday morning. So literally anything could happen between now and the time that you're listening to this. But it seems as though all indications are pointing towards, like you said, Nizar, Monday is the big day. And part of that reason is because like Hariri said it was going to be the big day. Right. That's when the 72 hours are up at 6.44 p.m. <laughs> right on, mm-hmm. on Monday. And and we, we've already heard as well. Uh, we got news today that the banks will be shut Monday. So it, it looks as though everything is coming to a head on Monday. Now, we may not get a resolution on Monday, but things are going to go down on Monday. All the signs point to, towards that. I've never been more excited for a Monday in my life. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. <laughs> All right. And I think on that note, uh, <laughs> that's it. I, I know we have to get to work, Tamor. They're, yep, they're yep. going to kill us if we don't get into work. And this is the longest... Um, <laughs> episode in the history of this ever, podcast ever ever yeah we we threw out all of the rules for this so i i hope i hope our listeners enjoyed it <laughs> yeah me too thank you so much Timur, for uh, for being here uh, it was yeah. really really amazing the insight that you gave us and um thank you for the pleasure always. thank you for the coverage that you're doing for the protest it's really it's really imp- important for us as organized political organizers um and yeah with that uh, we will we'll have an episode next week uh with we don't know what topic yet because this country is crazy (laughs) (laughs) and we cannot plan things um but anyway we'll see you next week in another episode and until then i'm nizar hassan i'm benjamin red i'm taimur azhari and this has been the lebanese politics podcast The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.